Hello and welcome back to the Good Work Podcast. I'm Felicity Holstead, your host and the founder of Good Work. This week, my guest is Gabby Slamer, who left Wall Street and the city to start financial wellbeing platform, Vinasana. In this episode, we talk about her early career experiences, extreme burnout, feeling like you don't belong in the corporate world, why financial freedom is achievable, and how it might just be the ticket to a better relationship with work. And of course, what we should be doing with our money in an economic downturn. Gabby is a fountain of great knowledge and practical advice, and I really enjoyed getting her take on early careers and our relationship with work. I think you will too. Gabby, welcome to the Good Work Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. So we are going to start today by just asking a little bit about your own work experience and your career's background and what got you to the point you're at today. So to start with my career background, I graduated in finance about 10 years ago and Mm -hmm. I went to University of Central Florida, which is a really big school over in the US, but not like an Ivy League, not a target school for most jobs in finance at least and quite local to the central Florida area. And I started out my major in university as like medical, something I wanted to be a doctor. And then I changed psychology and then went through the gamut of loads of different things, ended up getting a little bit involved in real estate. And then halfway through my, my degree, I changed it to finance for the sole reason that I didn't know what a stock was. So I changed my major to finance, started taking loads of classes and cramming for exams the night before and was really good at studying. It wasn't until three or four months before I graduated that I decided that I wanted to move to New York and work in finance. And Mm -hmm. it was more of a let's move to New York decision than let's work in finance. And looking back and knowing what I know now, incredibly naive to think that two months before I'm moving, I can just call someone up, get a job and move there. But that was what I was working with at the time. And I didn't yeah. have, like I said, it wasn't a target school. So nowadays, and you, you might be more familiar with this experience like this, but nowadays you start university and you're already getting sent to internships and recruiting and all of this process. And it, it was still, it was the same back then, but I just didn't know about it. So I yeah. go through it. And so I started looking for a job in finance because my major was in finance. I talked to a friend of my dad's who basically gave me this game plan I should follow. He was like, Mm -hmm. this is what you're going to do. You majored in finance, sign up for the CFA, take level one, look for a job in investment banking. You're going to do that for two years. Then Mm -hmm. you're going to go get your MBA at Harvard, Wharton, or Stanford, and you're going to go work in private equity. Mm -hmm. That is like the classic corporate finance route, right? Yeah. At the time I had no idea what any of that meant. No Mm -hmm. clue how difficult it was, like how prestigious or elitist or whatever. So I Google a list of investment banks, New York city and start firing off emails. Yeah. I didn't end up working for investment bank for my Mm -hmm. first job. I ended up working for a firm that was called Duff and Phelps that had an investment banking division, which is how they fell on my Google search. But I went to go work for the the valuation team of Duff and Phelps, which today is uh, called a different name, and not really knowing what I was getting myself into. Again, my my one-sided goal was move to New York City. It's so interesting. So what you say about, obviously, your experience may be a little bit less familiar to some people because you were in the US at that time. But 
first of all, I think I've, I've always felt that the way that the kind of US liberal arts system works that allows people to maybe chop and change and switch their majors partway through university has always made a lot more sense to me because I think a lot of us don't really know what we want to do at the age of 18. I think that's a really familiar feeling. And equally as well, you know, what you're saying around things like you know, getting given that path and not really understanding what it was that you really wanted to do. And actually it was, you just wanted to move to New York. I think a lot of people have that experience too. And certainly a lot of people who go into kind of graduate roles, they just want to move to London and they find themselves some kind of corporate job. I wasn't moving to London when I left uni. I was just trying to stay in London because I'd I'd come here to study. But yeah, I mean, I can remember being asked to interview, like, why do you want to work here? I was like, well, it's paid and it's in the city I want to live in. So that's why. Yeah, you can't say that, of course. <laughs> yeah, you no, you cannot like... say that. But yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. And, you know, what you talk about in terms of people, particularly those who kind of know what they want to do or who've come from certain backgrounds will go into those types of degrees or majors And like from day one of their first year, it's like, this is the path, right? It's spring week, it's get yourself all these internships, it's maximize your network. And to those who don't come from a background where they know anybody, either the school they went to wouldn't have prepared them for that. They don't know people who have gone through that ahead of them. As you say, like, it's incredibly overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. I think it's even more overwhelming if you're kind of aware of it, if that makes any sense. Like a lot of these people in these jobs, they've been primed since birth, not even since like day one of university. I mean, they've known their whole lives. They wanted to work in investment banking or law or whatever it is. So I think that the experience that I went through was almost kind of an advantage in disguise because Mm -hmm. had I known how difficult it was Mm -hmm. and to what extent all the cards were stacked against me, Mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have gone for it, but I didn't know. And so I thought Mm -hmm. it was just normal to to be approaching it the way I did. And And I think that's true too. Like a lot of people self-select out of those sort of processes because it feels so overwhelming and so alien and not the sort of place that is welcoming to somebody like them. So when you landed in that first role and you'd moved to New York and all of that, how did you find it landing there as a young woman who maybe hadn't expected to find yourself in that kind of workplace? What were your early experiences like? So I ended up joining about a month before everyone else. I don't even know. They asked me when I could start and I told them like the earliest date I could start. I didn't realize that there was a whole class of analysts on like a schedule. Yeah. So it wasn't until a couple of months in that I, and gosh, this was so long ago now, but I I remember that it took a while for me to realize like these people Mm -hmm. starting are all starting together. They're all from the same four schools. They've gone through like, two years of interviews and I remember thinking and I I kind of maintain this to this day that I would not have gotten through the Mm -hmm. classic I think it was like super day that they call it and the classic like interview case study process Mm -hmm. and I felt like I got there in like a back way Mm -hmm. in I don't think at least I was the only one I think there might have been like a couple other people who Mm -hmm. also didn't have like this exact same profile but It took me a while for me to realize that I was in a different situation to a lot of my classmates. And what you mentioned about the self-selection, I think that when you don't know any better, you kind of just like assume you're quote unquote normal or Mm -hmm. doing the same things as everyone else. And 
so at the beginning, I think starting before everyone else for me was actually an advantage because I didn't have that comparison Yeah, and I wasn't comparing myself to everyone else. So by the time everyone else joined, I actually felt like I was ahead because I had already been there for a couple of months. I had mm-hmm. had a lot of kind of one-on-one training and exposure to a lot of the more senior folks or people who had been there a couple of years and who were really great about training me. But I think that, and this actually, I'll tie this in later. And this is today part of the reason why I now run the company that I run about financial education. But during my interviews, I was asked like pretty basic finance questions about like a formula for XYZ is like the cap M formula that they asked me. And it was in all of my studies and I was taking tests on it but I didn't really understand the underlying concept and I had memorized the formula. Mm-hmm. So I got it wrong on my interview. They still, they still hired me. But then when I started working, I was taught everything that I needed to know. And again, I approached it from the same way that I had approached university, which is mm-hmm. let me just learn how to do the task at hand. Let me just learn how to yeah. pass a test. And it wasn't a test in the real world, but it kind of is. You have like a deliverable mm-hmm. and you got to make sure it's right with the least mistakes possible. And people were great on my first job. And I learned so much while I was there, but it was really painful because no one ever really sat down with me and was like, let's talk about why things are the way that they are, what they mean, how you mm-hmm. should understand like conceptually to then be able to apply it. Mm-hmm. to the work that you're doing. And I just assumed that everyone else knew what they were doing because they knew the vocabulary words and yeah. they were talking about things in finance. Like it sounded like it, they knew what they were doing because, and the truth is now I know that they had been primed by Wall Street or Oasis or whatever these like interview prep studies are to yes. answer questions with the exact wording mm-hmm. that they should use. But mm-hmm. a couple of years later, when then I sat on the other side of the table and would be the one interviewing people. You just hear people like regurgitating these words back to you without having a clue what they actually mean. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, so I went into consulting and, you know, there's all of the the case study books and all of that and the organizations you can pay to help you prepare for a job interview. And I mean, it it just, it smacks of elitism from the beginning. But also, I mean, it's like, you've not only got to know, I mean, I got so far as that I knew I needed to buy the book and I could afford to buy the book. So I bought the book and I then kind of like put it on a shelf and kind of hoped (laughs) that I would learn through osmosis. And that's why I didn't get a job at McKinsey. To me, I just looked at this stuff and it felt like another language that I was never going to be able to speak. But, you know, as you say as well, I knew I needed to buy the book and I could afford to buy the book. Lots of people even if they know they need it, that accessibility in terms of how people recruit. And again, I then ended up on the flip side, interviewing people a couple of years later and just thinking, what is this madness? Yeah, Because also a lot of it doesn't even really relate to the job you'll end up doing. And so that is what led me, I think, to really rethink my own approach to early careers and how we hire and all of that. In one of my most more recent jobs before I left, I was interviewing interns I I was an intern journalist I don't know like 19 year olds people like still in university and we'd be asking them so like we'd have these briefs of questions we have to ask and there would be questions on there that Mm -hmm. I kid you not like I couldn't answer there was people Mm -hmm. most of the people I worked with guarantee you couldn't answer and then a lot of things like we'd be asking people to do mental math and I remember which is just like it blows my mind it's so stupid 
And I remember we were in this like debrief Zoom session with loads of people. And this was like close to me leaving my job. So I was like already fed up. I was like up to here with the job. And then, so I said something, I was like, guys, what are we doing here? We're asking these people questions that they don't even get. Like, this is silly. Not all of us are good at mental math. I was like, I suck at mental math, which is why I keep a calculator next to me. (laughs) Like we have Excel. This is stupid. And the amount of backlash I received, I was silenced immediately. And that was also one of the moments where I was like, God, I need to get out of here. Like, this is not for me, but it was just so shocking. And then afterwards having conversations with some of those same Mm -hmm. people who maybe kind of spoke up again, not against me, but kind of were like, Oh no, 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 no. That's not the way it works afterwards. We're like, yeah, it's dumb. I can't believe we do that. I'm like, then why didn't you say something on the call? Why are we still perpetuating this elitism and this notion that you have to get every single question right you have to be a genius you have to be this level of prepared that Mm -hmm. frankly when you start at those entry-level jobs we teach you everything you need to know anyway I think the reason that companies like hiring people out of university you need to know that someone's smart but you want to mold them to learn the way that your firm does things I want to just touch on something else you said before before moving on from that so around you know that feeling that others would be coming out with this language and seemed like everybody else knew what they were talking about because I think that really resonates for me as well and I think it really reinforces that imposter syndrome that we can often feel in professional environments and the biggest lesson I ever learned in my first job was most of the time those people actually are just saying words they don't really know what they're talking about But that assumption and that confidence that people have, it's really, really hard to kind of battle with and to come up against, particularly when you're in an environment where you might feel like a minority, whether that's because of your gender or your ethnicity or your socioeconomic background. And that can be a real challenge. And I think for me, it started to really grind up my confidence and and my mental health. And I know you've talked a bit about your experiences of your own mental health while you were working in finance. Can you talk a bit more about what that was and how it led you to ultimately make the decision to leave? Yeah, sure. So I think a couple of different things there, the excessive use of jargonism, probably not directly related to kind of the mental health struggles, but was something that really bothered me throughout Mm -hmm. my entire career. And I, I remember I always respected people the most at work who weren't Mm -hmm. afraid to ask the basic questions and who didn't act like they knew everything and didn't hide behind jargon and didn't use these like fancy words and complicated theory to try to mask the fact that they perhaps didn't understand it in a way that they could explain it in a basic way or to create that kind of elitism whether knowingly or subconsciously And I remember I loved when people would say, like, explain this to me, like I'm a Mm five-year-old and people in like really senior positions would say that all the time. And that's when I started to realize, like explaining it to me, like I'm a five-year-old or explaining something like you're a five-year-old isn't a sign of weakness at all. In fact, it's a sign that of strength and of intelligence, because if you understand something so well that you can explain it in really basic language, and if you can use basic language to convey complicated concepts it's even more powerful yeah so that is kind of like the jargon piece of it and my frustrations with that and then the the mental health stuff that yeah I mean 
I was massively, massively, massively burnt out, like Mm -hmm. on a huge scale. I was living in New York City for, I don't know, seven or eight years, I think it was, working in finance. I started at that valuation job. And then from there, I went to a hedge fund where I initially joined in their valuation team, helped them rebuild the private investment valuation practice, and then transferred onto the deal team in situational investing. And that particular fund that I worked at, that transfer was incredibly difficult. And for a very long time, I mean, I was told this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. And I just kept going for it. And people would actually say to me, like, you are not going to get transferred because you didn't go to Harvard, which is just insanity. And the irony that they then a couple of years later sent me to recruit at Harvard was (laughs) ridiculous. I was like, this is a joke, but because I had people skills like, LOL. (laughs) Yeah. But so anyway, that, that was hard. And I was told like explicitly over and over and over, you don't fit in. You're not going to make it. You don't have this university degree you or had a degree just not the one that they wanted you didn't Mm -hmm. have this experience that we want you don't fit into this mold and then eventually I did end up transferring and but by the time I transferred I was I had been I was just so intimidated I mean yeah when you're told over and over and over and over again you're not good enough you're not good enough you're not good enough it, it, it can be really hard and not to mention I mean it was the team that I worked on was all males. I mean, mm-hmm. all like pr- pretty much the same exact demographic of white mm-hmm. male and age group who had very similar economic backgrounds and places they had worked and studied. And it was really hard. And I think that I stepped back and I was intimidated. And I think I hid a little bit and I was scared to speak up at meetings. I was I mean, I don't know a better way to put it than just intimidated. It's astonishing to me because, you know, when I think now about HR and people leadership and management and all of the things that I have learned bits about over the last few years since I started my career, you know, you think, well, why on earth would an organization not be wanting to support its talented young people and its talented employees. So it always amazes me when organizations won't make even basic concessions or invest basic amounts into training and supporting people, you know, if they don't have the skills or the experience that they need in order to succeed, because you just lose people and you lose good people. And I've, I've seen it many times and ultimately, right. That's kind of what happened with you. So you've, made the decision to move on yeah I I, so to be honest though I I have to say in the experiences that I've been in and Mm -hmm. the finance world I don't know that they care I think that in theory yeah they don't want to lose people because it costs money and it's ironic that they're finance people and they should be putting these numbers down (laughs) in Excel and like figuring out how much it's going to cost but the reality is that there are so many people vying for these jobs and you're just a cog and if you quit, I don't know that they really give a shit, frankly. It, it is that whole loyalty thing and people expect you to give everything you have to them to the point of risk to your own health. I saw this thing on TikTok mm-hmm. or Instagram or whatever the other day that was like one of those reels showing how different generations would react to getting a call at like mm-hmm. 4.59 on a Friday or something. And it was like the generation above us, something yeah. like they saw the call. It was like, oh, they're calling me. 
it's 4.59. I wonder what they want. I guess I'll answer. It was yeah. the millennial being like, oh my God, oh my God, my phone's ringing. I have to answer this. I have to take it. I need to give them everything. <laughs> and then the Gen Z or whatever, the people below being like 4.59. Yeah, not getting that. Yeah. And it's really, really interesting. I mean, it spoke to me so much because I was like, yeah, I've been there in 4.59. Like that is prime, like have the first coffee of the afternoon, gear up for the next six, eight hours. Yeah. Morning. Yeah. Those days where you would see 5 p.m. come and go and like not even it wouldn't even ping on your radar um yeah I have massive anxiety every single time I left the office in New York at like 9 p.m I mean sometimes I would leave at like 7 30 to get to a yoga class and I would have like the irony of anxiety during a yoga class that's supposed to calm you down but I'd be like oh my god what if my phone rang what if someone called me what if I got an email I have to answer and that's just like so unhealthy and so the fact that I worked yeah. out so dramatically and had such a high level of anxiety and panic attacks after mm. going through that for seven years, like, yeah, no doubt. I mean, yeah. our bodies are not made to withstand that kind of pressure and that kind of stress. And I think it feeds that super competitive environment as well, where people actually are constantly pursuing more in terms yeah. of promotions and money and things like that, because you end up really honing in on that word compensation and thinking, well, I want to be paid more to have this life that is not fun for me. And that is unpleasant because it is effectively compensation for getting out of bed and doing something you don't want to do and feeling rubbish about it all of the time and I think that again for me when I started to realize that I wasn't seeking more money you know I wasn't chasing a promotion because I actually you know it's always nice to have more money and you know you always manage to spend it right but it was not to do with that at all it was to do with feeling like I just needed more and more validation that I was worth something because the job was making me feel not the way I think you say like, oh, I'm working these hours, but I am getting paid this much. So as long yeah. as I'm getting paid, then it's worth yeah. it. But I had a very similar thing to you. And part, again, part of the reason that ultimately mm. led me to make the decision to leave is that throughout my career, I'd gotten all of these pay raises and kept getting paid more and more and more. And I finally looked at myself in the mirror and I asked myself, am I happier because I am making this paycheck? And the answer was like, mm. objectively, no, I'm miserable. Yeah. I am riddled with anxiety and panic attacks. I can't even go to dinner without getting a call and like calling me home. And then coming to that realization and being able to decouple the successful, am I successful from, am I rich? Like, do I have a big mm-hmm. paycheck? Am I spending money on things that make me happy or am I just spending it because I have it and it's making me feel better about being completely miserable during the week and on the weekends? It's hard to kind of decouple those two things. Also, I think a lot of times society around us tells us that money equals success. Having a job, being on Wall Street makes you successful. Being a lawyer makes you successful. Mm -hmm. But when I looked at people around me and I said, well, who do I think is successful? Who has the life that I want? It wasn't the partners at the investment bank I worked at. It wasn't people making millions. And I think coming to that realization and saying like, okay, well, these quote unquote successful people who make loads of money, are they happy? Do I want their life? Mm -hmm. Would I feel successful if I had their job? And when the answer was a resounding no, I was like, well, what in the world am I doing this for then? I 
very similarly as well. And also just the thought of like, I don't want to spend the next 40 years of my life feeling like this and probably longer, right? How we'll we'll retire when we're 85, I think at this rate. But having commiserated about our early experiences in corporate careers, I'd love you to just give us a bit more about what it is that you went on to do, because I think it's really related to that experience that you had, as you talked about, of, you know, not really feeling like you understood the financial world when you went into it. Yeah, absolutely. So Finasana is the company that I run today. It's a financial education and well-being platform. And everything that I've talked about pretty much is why I went in and decided to build this. It was, I was so over all of the jargon on Wall Street and the fact that everyone was using these fancy words to one-up each other and pretend like they understood concepts that a lot of times most of us within the industry didn't really get and especially not the first couple of years working in it. And money is something that impacts every single one of us, whether we want to deal with it or not, we're forced to deal with it. And if me, who graduated in finance, who worked in finance in the beginning of my career, I didn't really understand how to take those concepts and apply them to my own money, then what hope is there for anyone else? How can we expect people to properly manage their finances, properly invest their money, properly prepare for retirement if there's this massive gap between those who understand financial literacy concepts and those who don't? And a lot of times I think the financial world overcomplicates a lot of these concepts and just make things a lot harder than they actually need to be. So that is kind of the what I ended, I ended up doing. The burnout and mental health stuff was more on the why and kind of yeah. being able to approach my own finances and my own income from this more mindful perspective and mm-hmm. taking a different view to it than I perhaps would have a couple of years before, I came to the realization that A, it's not all about how much money you make and B, a lot of people stress out about money, whether you make a lot of money or whether you make a little money. Obviously, the lower your income levels, like that financial Mm -hmm. stress is going to be very different to someone who makes a lot of money. But our bodies don't know how to tell the difference between stress and stress is stress. And our bodies will process it the same, whether it's a lion running after us in the savannah or it's because we can't pay our credit card bill this month. I completely relate. I can remember very early on in my career, you know, having the option to invest in buying shares in the company I worked for. And it just felt so overwhelming because it felt, and I think as well, we don't always recognize, particularly when you're in your early 20s, like these sums that feel like nothing to, you know, companies and to senior managers and all of that, they it can be more money than you've ever had in your life. And yes. the thought of like, oh, but there's a risk I could lose, you know, 2000 pounds, which might seem like nothing to the organization is a huge, huge deal to you as an individual. And, and it, it really causes a lot of anxiety. And there were very few opportunities out there to kind of be in a position to really understand that and understand what the options are. And I think particularly from a kind of financial inclusion point of view, if you've not grown up in a family where managing money is 
something, I mean, I, I think we're all quite bad at talking about it anyway, but if you've grown up in a family that didn't have any money to, to manage or to look after, then obviously money is always going to be a stress. But when it comes to things like investing, it's just it's not even, like, yeah. it's, it's like a completely, completely different language. Can you tell us a bit more about kind of how Finasana works and how you're able to support people with that inclusion piece and to feel like it's something that they can actually feel a bit more confident about? So the whole ethos behind Finasana is bridging that gap between money and wellness and using basic financial concepts to give you money confidence and give you Mm -hmm. more tools in your toolbox to approach your finances in a way that will help you be happier, really. And not give up the things that makes life fun, but make sure that you have a good financial base so that you don't experience financial stress or that you experience less financial stress. And the way that we do that is through education. So we start at the very, very basics, use simple language, we make it fun, we make it relatable, and we just teach people about these concepts from the ground up. So the way that I've approached it, that we've approached it is to not assume anyone has any base level of knowledge, because when you assume that people are starting from here, 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 there's going to be people all over that. And Mm -hmm. you're going to make people feel stupid or Mm -hmm. like they're left out or like they're missing something, like they don't know something. And like we talked about earlier, there's so many people using these words and they don't actually understand the basics. So I think that taking it back to like the foundational building blocks is helpful Mm -hmm. for everyone it just promotes accessibility and inclusivity. And it, even those people who perhaps are a bit more financially literate or mm-hmm. know a little bit more, have had more exposure through their lives, then having the fundamentals is mm-hmm. going to build a good, solid foundation. It's like building a house, right? The stronger your base, the sturdier everything else is going to be. And so we really focus on that base because at the end of the day, money shouldn't be as difficult as we make it out to be. And all of it relies on a couple of basic fundamental concepts that when you strip them back, they aren't that complicated. If you can approach everything from their kind of starting point, Mm -hmm. then things become a lot simpler and a lot easier. Valuing a public company can be really, really complex on Mm -hmm. a spreadsheet, right? I mean, there's these massive Excel models that have thousands of line items and you're looking at financial statements and Mm -hmm. all the rest. And in the interviews, you'd usually ask, like, how do you value a company? And you'd have people shouting out all these formulas and jargon Mm -hmm. and buzzwords and all this. But when you strip it back, I say like, okay, well, let's say I am starting a company to sell this coffee mug. Yeah. How do I value it? And when you start from that level, it Mm -hmm. just, it's a lot easier to build it on. I mean, okay, well, how much would someone pay for this coffee? How many coffee cups can I sell? What is Starbucks selling for? Like, and it sounds so basic, but Mm -hmm. that is what the entire financial industry is based on, right? Like Mm -hmm. how much is Starbucks selling for it? Okay, that's comparable company analysis. Yeah. And I'm simplifying a little bit here, but I think it applies to everything. I mean, something like debt, Mm -hmm. debt is credit cards, mortgages, payday loans, car loans, if you understand even bonds in the stock market, mm-hmm. if you understand the very basics of how debt works, 
-hmm. you can then apply that to all of these different things that all of us are going to have to deal with at some point in our lives. But instead, the world has approached it from the opposite standpoint. And instead of saying, okay, well, let's explain what debt is. It's like, how much is my mortgage going to be? What are APR? Like getting into very dense words that makes it more difficult for us to strip it back and say, okay, well, at the end of the day, a mortgage is just borrowed money. A credit card is just borrowed money. A payday loan is just borrowed money. And stripping things back makes it more accessible and easier for everyone. Yeah. And I think when you talk to about accessing things that feel kind of foreign and complicated, and I know we've spoken a bit about this previously, but to me, you know, the, the kind of hot thing and the like, finance and investing you certainly see the hot thing as if I have a clue but you know in terms of what people are talking about is nfts and crypto and you know there's so much conversation and so much of it in the news and I've seen a lot of initiatives out there that are really about making sure that actually minority groups and people who are often marginalized aren't left out of this you know what is often being pitched as a really huge opportunity and while I really applaud that I guess there is a real part of me that kind of winces a bit at the whole thing because while I think democratizing access to investment and access to things that can help people to invest their money wisely and generate wealth that they can pass down in the future you know I don't think that it's fair for us to stop people from having the opportunity to do that particularly when they might be the first generation of their family that's had the opportunity to do that But at the same time, I worry that there's a lot of smoke and mirrors and it's very hard to understand. And it's very hard to put any tangible value on from my understanding of it. And as someone who obviously is an expert in the financial space, I'm just interested in what your take is on that and whether it's something that people should be concerned about or an opportunity to actually, as they say, like really level the playing field in terms of access to to new types of investments. Most people who buy lottery tickets are low income. Yeah. And I think that the same reasons for that apply to this kind of crypto phase. It's because they're viewing an easy way to access a world that they otherwise probably Mm -hmm. don't have access to. And this whole like crypto craze and NFTs and all that, a lot Mm -hmm. of people are viewing it as a get rich quick solution or an easy way to get rich and kind of like a way to ride the bandwagon. I think Mm -hmm. that where it's really dangerous is that people aren't talking about risk as much Mm -hmm. as they should be. People are taking on excessive levels of risk. Mm -hmm. Someone with a higher degree of financial literacy and understanding how investments work and how Mm -hmm. asset allocation works, even if they believe that crypto is the future, that it is going to skyrocket, Mm -hmm. the chances that they are putting 100% of their assets behind it and taking Mm -hmm. on this massive level of risk is actually pretty low. Whereas people who don't understand risk and Mm -hmm. asset allocation and investment strategy might think that's a good idea. But the the best way to kind of beat the wealth gap and Mm -hmm. generate wealth for the future is to build good habits, start early and be consistent about those Mm -hmm. habits. It's not making a good investment that's going to double or triple your money in a year. It's putting a little bit of money away every single month, every single year for decades. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be a lot because values compound and grow Mm -hmm. over the long term. 
but that doesn't sound sexy. That isn't <laughs> it's selling. not sexy. Um, um, it's not sensible. People, being sensible. Yeah. People aren't getting excited about it. We're very short term in nature. We want something yeah. that's going to help us today. It's going to mm-hmm. help us soon. We can see the value in it and seeing our money grow over decades just feels intangible. Mm-hmm. So it's easier to say, well, I'm going to invest in crypto and make loads of money. But yeah, as I started with, you're missing a really, really key component of investment mm-hmm. strategy there, which is risk. Mm-hmm. And you're taking on crazy levels of risk and doing that, the chances that you are going to make it big, and mm-hmm. I mean, are quite low, frankly, yeah. if they were high, then everyone would be doing this. It's risky mm-hmm. for a reason. But it's it's a little bit easier to bet on. It's the same reason we buy lottery tickets. Yeah. And so if you were talking to a young person who you know maybe has started in their kind of first post-school, post-university career type job and is starting to earn a little bit of money and putting it away, what would you say are the sensible moves if they want to, to figure out what they can do with that in order to potentially be able to help them put down a deposit on a house or to save for the future in the medium or longer term? Sure. Well, I always say that there's three rules for success Mm -hmm. that everyone should follow, no matter how much money you have, no matter how old you are, no matter where in life you are. Mm -hmm. And they sound incredibly basic and people roll their eyes sometimes. But (laughs) if every single one of us followed these three rules, then we would have no financial stress, no money issues. Everything would kind of figure itself out, which is save money. Yeah. Save something and just make it consistent. Start mm-hmm. saving early and keep saving small amounts over mm-hmm. a long period of time. As you make more money, you can save more money. But the money that you save early on in your life is the one that's going to have the most impact because mm-hmm. it has the longer time to grow. The second rule is pay off bad debt. Mm-hmm. Make it a priority to pay off credit card debt any sort of consumer loans that are growing at really high double digit interest rates. Yeah. And then the third rule is invest for the future. And Mm -hmm. that is what is going to propel your wealth. Mm -hmm. Investing. Investing is what helps us prepare for retirement. It's what helps us grow our savings. It's what helps protect us from inflation. Mm -hmm. It is the single best tool that any one of us have. And Mm -hmm. it is quite accessible. You don't have to invest in things like crypto. It doesn't have to be super risky. You can invest in a sensible way. And what you're really looking for in investments is moderate returns over a long period of time. So I would take consistent, moderate returns over short periods of high returns any day. Yeah. As you say, like sensible doesn't always feel sexy, but it is absolutely. But it works. The way to go. (laughs) It works, right? Yeah. And I think just kind of moving on from some of that too, I think you've mentioned it in terms of inflation. You know, we're in what feels like the beginning of what might be a dicey 18 months financially, you know, with with levels of inflation and rising cost of living, certainly in the UK. Is it is it a bad time for people to be making substantial financial moves and investments or is there any kind of advice or thoughts you would give to anyone who's feeling anxious about what they do with their money at, at this particular moment in history? So generally speaking, recessions and economic downturns are going to be the absolute best time to invest your yeah. money because you're getting in at the bottom and then yeah. it's going to go up. If you invest during periods of 
economic boom, you're investing at the top and it might go down or the chances of it going down are perhaps a little bit higher because you're investing at the peak. Now, the biggest problem is it's impossible to know when you've hit the bottom or when you hit the top. But historically speaking, over the past Mm -hmm. hundred years, the economy has always recovered. Periods Mm -hmm. of boom have been followed by periods of bust and periods of bust have been followed by periods of boom. And inflation and recessions are a normal part of life. Mm -hmm. And if you can have a long-term outlook and keep your money invested and be, be, again, being sensible and just Mm -hmm. trying to not let the headlines get to you. I mean, if you read the Financial Times or Wall Street Journal, everything is just so fear mongering. Mm -hmm. And it, I mean, it's clickbaity. They want you to click the articles and it works, but no one's going to say, actually, I take that back. It's funny because sometimes I, I don't remember exactly what article it was, but it was like, the stock market's crashing. Oh my God, everyone freak out. And then you click it and it's like the sensible thing to do is stay invested and keep your money in and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I was like, why don't you, why don't you lead with that? And it's because people don't get clicks, but a lot of times, I mean, I don't click every article I see. You, right. you scan, you look at headlines and yeah. So can it be a good time to invest? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Might it keep going down? Yes, we we don't know, but chances are over the long term, if you stick it out over decades, your money will recover. Yeah. You know, the purpose of of good work is it's all about making that early career experience feel more inclusive and meaningful and and also to make it fairer for people who are often marginalized, particularly in the sorts of corporate environments that we've talked about. So I think there's kind of two parts to, to my next question, really. The first one is from all of the experiences that you've had, what would you change about the experience that you've had or what is it that you would like to see industry moving towards doing in order to make early careers a more inclusive place and I guess the second part is having moved from that into being a business owner and a founder do you feel that that has overall you know, helped you to achieve a bit more of that balance and finding some more meaning in your day-to-day I'll start with the latter yes absolutely yeah. <laughs> I mean Good. a lot more meaning it's it's obviously very different being mm-hmm. working for yourself and starting a company and working yeah. in this kind of startup environment to working mm-hmm. for a corporate job. The stress is very different, but there is stress. I mean, any it's impossible to completely, or mm-hmm. for me, I think it is impossible to completely eradicate stress from your, a career, but it's a very different type of stress. It's a lot more meaningful. I have a lot more control. I know that everything I'm putting out there is going towards a greater goal. I'm not doing Mm -hmm. wasted work. So yes, I'm much happier. And I think crucially, I really value that work-life balance. And that doesn't mean that I log off every day at five and I don't ever work on the weekends. I mean, quite Mm -hmm. contrary to that. It just means that I know my limits. I know what I need in order Mm -hmm. to be productive. I know that if I don't get eight hours of sleep, that I'm not going to be very productive. If maybe I'm not getting eight hours of sleep every single night, but I know that if there's a period of time that I'm not meeting basic like mental and emotional hygiene, I guess you can call it, I'm not going to be my best. So I need to change something for the benefit of the company. And you just don't get that luxury in corporate life, even though you're, I mean, there'd be times I I used to try to set myself like a Cinderella deadline of not working past midnight, which in itself is a stupidly ridiculous (laughs) statement. 
and I didn't always need it. And, but I would always say, I mean, towards the end of my career, I got a lot more like ballsy, I guess you can say, where if I was working at 1am, I'd be like, guys, you don't want me to do this work. There are going to be mistakes. I know myself, let me go to bed. I'll do it in the morning. Mm -hmm. But in an investment banking environment, I mean, that just doesn't work. It's like, Mm -hmm. if I don't do the work, someone else is going to have to. Yeah. So something I would change, I guess it goes directly into that treating people as humans instead of cogs. Yeah. Trying to incorporate the way that each individual is going to be at their best into the work environment and the work output and looking at an individual kind of holistically and saying, how can we best help you succeed? And what does that mean to you? What do you need? Instead of like, we need to turn around this pitch for this client in 24 hours. That's going to be a 15 page deck. That they're then not going to read. That they're not going to read. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all about like staying up late and doing work when it's meaningful. But yeah, I think when you, yeah, like you just said, when you're doing all this work and pushing yourself to the literal brink and then it gets thrown out, you're like, what the? Yeah, I, I know. And then sometimes the response is, well, you still got paid. And it's like, yeah, but uh, like my life my I know health, the way I was sleep, told like actually someone said to me yeah. don't view the work as being for your client view it as being for your boss yeah it's just very difficult especially when that boss doesn't give you anything <laughs> exactly and you stayed up till 1am to finish something that oh three weeks God. later the of times they've not like a red line just crossed yeah. I'm just like why <laughs> yeah I know I feel yeah so my final question is if there was um, a book to read or a podcast to listen to or anything that you think has fed into your own career journey that you would recommend, what would it be? One book that I read fairly recently, but I recommend it to everyone is Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. He okay. talks a lot about a lot about the same things that I now talk mm-hmm. about. Probably I talk about a lot of the same things he talks about. <laughs> But it's a fantastic book. It digs Mm -hmm. into a lot of these concepts of like how we view ourselves as successful or not Mm -hmm. managing money from more of like a values perspective. I think those are probably my words more than his, but the Mm -hmm. underlying concepts are the same. And it's, it just completely changed my view and is hands down the best money finance-y career-y type book that I've ever read. So definitely Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Fantastic. Thank you. And if listeners are interested in hearing a bit more about Finasana, how can they find out about it? So you can download our app. That's Finasana, F-I-N-A-S-A-N-A. Visit us on our website, www.finasana.com. And we actually just launched a new podcast called Invest Like a Woman by Finasana, available wherever you get your podcasts. And then, of course, the the regular social channels, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok, even. Amazing. Thank you so much, Gabby. Really enjoyed talking to you today and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Yes, likewise. It's been lovely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you share it with friends and colleagues, leave us a review and check you're subscribed so you don't miss us next week. To keep up with all things Good Work, follow us at Good Work UK on LinkedIn. The Good Work podcast is brought to you by Good Work, a social impact business on a mission to make early careers fairer, more inclusive and more meaningful. We're working to remove barriers for young people from less privileged backgrounds 
and support businesses to reimagine their approach to entry-level talent and skills. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.